You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is an assistant professor of American history at Stanford University, studying slavery, capitalism, and disease. Her writing and research has appeared in multiple publications, including the New York Times and the American Historical Review. Holding a PhD in history from the University of Oxford, her latest book is titled Necropolis, Disease, Power, and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom, published by Harvard University Press. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Catherine Oliveris. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. So firstly, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background, how you got into studying history, history and specifically antebellum New Orleans. So my name is Catherine Oliverius. I'm an assistant professor of history at Stanford University. Um, I did my graduate work in the UK, um, and I'm American, of course, you can hear from my accent, um, but I grew up in the UK as well. Um, and I came to be interested in American history specifically because I took a series of great co- um, classes in college um, when I was at Yale, and I was particularly interested in the sort of Civil War period um, in the 19th century. And when I went into my um, my um, PhD, I actually went and wanted to do a sort of different product to um, the project that it turned out to be Necropolis. Uh, I wanted to understand how the slave experience um, changed in the Deep South, the American Deep South, as it transitioned from a Spanish and um, French colonial possession into and, and the American period after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. Um, but when I actually got into the archives, um, what impressed me most was in just source after source, um, of these letters or diaries, um, you would you would open these sort of eight page letters um, between business associates, and you would see, you know, some talk about business and the market. Um, but then, you know, five of the eight pages would be about disease, and one disease in particular, yellow fever, um, a disease that I actually hadn't heard about very much before this. I, I knew, of course, knew it existed, but I was sort of shocked to see just how much yellow fever scared them, um, controlled their lives, how much it was discussed, how much. It became a part of their self-identity. And this is a, you know, a truly gruesome disease um, um, in, in the 19th century, a very, very deadly one, still very deadly today. Um, but this was a disease that would visit um, antebellum New Orleans um, in the deep, American Deep South um, every second or third summer. And um, if you contracted yellow fever, um, you often would have some very serious symptoms. Um, you would um, convulse, you would become nauseous, you would grow jaundiced, um, you would eventually perhaps elapse into a coma and die. Um, and very famously, you would regurgitate this thick black vomit um, just before you died, um, roughly the color and consistency of coffee grounds. And so I came to um, into this project really sort of so this really was born out of the sources. Um, and I came to see disease not just a sort of background noise. Um, to the sort of more resonant stories of the cotton kingdom and its development, but um, more like dark matter sort of impacting everything and controlling a great deal um, of what happened um, in the 19th century. Okay, um, so your latest book, uh, obviously, as we mentioned, is titled Necropolis, Disease, Power and Capitalism in the Cotton Kingdom. So could you please give us a quick overview um, of the book, sort of what it covers and, and the term immunocapital? Sure. So. This book is fundamentally sort of challenging a premise that um, this idea that past epidemics and pandemics um, sort of from the plague Justinian um, to the Black Death could be 
so-called great levelers. Um, that is these moments of mass death and chaos, but that ultimately um, sort of flattened social asymmetries. Um, so, you know, after the Black Death, for example, um, workers had more bargaining power, potentially surviving workers. Um, people were sort of forged in a sense of common humanity, perhaps. Um, they seemed uh, they would perhaps also feel um, sort of more um, connection to one another and subservience to um, an omnipotent God. Um, but this book, Necropolis, argues um, that disease was no great leveler, in fact, in antebellum New Orleans and the larger Deep South. And in fact, disease um, created for more inequality, not less, by basically adding epidemi epidemiological discrimination um, to the panoply of other forms of discrimination in the society, um, so especially racial discrimination. Um, this was a slave society after all. So this book um, basically traces um, from the 1790s, um, when the first the first um, reported epidemics of yellow fever took hold in Antebellum, New Orleans. Um, so really from 1796 until the end of the 19th century, um, um, in 1905, um, it, this is the 20th century, of course, um, but to the last reported epidemic of yellow fever um, with about 450 people dying in um, 1905. So in the six decades before the Civil War, um, epidemics increased in frequency and ferocity. And this book basically traces um, just how totally intrinsic yellow fever came to um, came to be in the way that this society was organized, um, not just racially organized, but um, politically organized um, as well. And the ways in which, you know, so basically arguing that yellow fever impacted um, the pace and schedule of business, it impacted how the state saw citizens, how citizens saw the state and how they saw each other, how people self-identified. Um, and it fundamentally also became a sort of modality of living here, yellow fever, um, and immunity to it um, gained only by surviving this disease. Um, and in the past, in the 19th century, about 50% of people died if they contracted this illness. The other 50% of people became acclimated or immune for life. Um, how immunity to this disease, um, which was invisible, um, came to permeate all manner of calculations about how, you know, how, how your position um, came to permeate all manner of calculations about how this, um, how one sort of interacted in the society. So, Amino capitalism, um, which is sort of the central um, thesis of this book or the sort of central term that I'm using, um, it was a system of class rule um, that came to prevail in New Orleans, um, where yellow fever and immunity to it provided ideological legitimation for vast inequality. So all forms of capitalism, so war capitalism or necro-capitalism or racial capitalism, industrial capitalism, um, all of these forms of capitalism arise not because of the sort of irresistible logic of the market, um, but because powerful actors mobilized the materials at their disposal um, to consolidate their dominance. Um, this could be as true of disease as it was of laws or demographics or politics. Now, amino-capital was sort of, sort of more precise within this metric. So in the at the time, um, in the 19th century, um, people who survived yellow fever called themselves acclimated. Um, in other parts of the Atlantic world, sometimes the word creolized or seasoned was used, but by the 19th century, it was really acclimated. Um, so survivors of yellow fever were acclimated. Um, now, acclimation on um, this process was the process of surviving um, yellow fever, um, but it became amino capital when a person convinced other people of their immunity status um, and was able to leverage this immunity for material gain, um, professionally, economically, or socially. So people at the time literally thought of their immunity as a form of capital. Um, the definitions mapping um, fairly closely to those theorized by French sociologist um, Pierre Bourdieu. And the sort of the trickiness of this um, immunity, of course, is that it's invisible. Um, so unlike other diseases at the time, like smallpox, for example, um, 
survivors of yellow fever were not left with physical scars. And yellow fever um, was very, very easy to misdiagnose in the 19th century Deep South. Um, and it was frequently misdiagnosed um, as malaria, um, which was also endemic um, to this region. Um, so some people would go, you know, their entire lives quite sure, um, fairly certain that they were acclimated, um, that they could sort of trace their symptoms um, um, back, that they, they, they could see in their symptoms that they had cerebral fever. Um, they might have been diagnosed by a doctor or had other witnesses um, who could profess to this. But most people remained fundamentally unsure of if what they had actually survived was truly yellow fever or else some other kind of fever um, or, uh, or sickness. Um, but um, so you know, when I say that they, the people at the time sort of convinced uh, or conceived of immunity as a form of capital, um, it, you know, as um, French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu did, um, this is why I mean this. So immunity was immaterial, um, intangible and immovable. So it could not be transferred um, as material capital could between people. Um, but it was merit-based um, in their logic. So you earned it. Uh, each person earned it. Um, by surviving yellow fever, and it was encoded with pecuniary value no different than other forms of tangible capital, like machines or enslaved people, for example. Um, this is um, so a white man, and white man is very important here. Um, race is deeply um, it's de is deeply embedded in the way that immunity is valued. Um, a white man with immuno capital um, found himself economically reborn, so he made more money and better jobs. Um, he was promoted more readily to the managerial class of you know cotton warehouses. Um, or merchant firms. Um, he um, had access to new lines of credit and insurance. Um, basically, you could not get credit or insurance if you were unacclimated. Um, and his social standing also improved. Um, many people found that they could now marry um, in acclimated circles. They could do the, the sort of the world was their oyster after they had survived yellow fever. Um, so with, with this acclimation credential, amino capital. Um, and so he was provided with access to sort of new lucrative commercial and civic networks. Um, and I mean, white individuals also possessed cultural capital, I should say here too. Uh, so in declaring themselves acclimated, um, they were making a claim about their innate worth and legitimacy, um, that they were good risks, um, that they were people of character and grit permanently invested in the society and in turn worthy of investment. Okay, um, so I wanted to start off by sort of exploring this concept of acclimation and the advantages that it conferred in New Orleans in the early 19th century. So given that the mortality rate of yellow fever was over 50% and that the disease was widespread, the epidemic inevitably had implications for every aspect of life at the time. So um, for example, if employers would take a large gamble in hiring and training employees who had a strong likelihood of prompt, promptly contracting the disease and passing away, um, as, as would creditors um, investors, et cetera. So this high risk factor, um, as I understand it, means that such people would obviously prefer to uh, prefer people who had recovered from and were therefore immune to the disease. So Dr. Oliverius, from a purely market-oriented standpoint, it seems to me that any rational actor um, who would have been an employer or creditor um, in antebellum New Orleans um, at would have been justified in, in giving strong preferential treatment to acclimated individuals given the higher security. Similarly, if a rational actor were to hire or loan to unacclimated individuals, the additional risk warranted additional precautions, um, you know, similar to how uh, how um, insurance providers today um, mm -hmm. charge greater premiums to more risky um, Mm -hmm. to, to more risky um, sort of people. So would you agree that the market at this time accurately factored in this potential risk when comparing acclimated and unacclimated individuals? And how did the prospect of simply lying about being acclimated or, or mistakenly thinking that one was acclimated factor into this? It's a great question. Um, and I think 
in many ways, the market was rational um, in the, in prioritizing or giving preference to acclimated individuals. Um, the way that it did it, um, it wasn't necessarily um, didn't necessarily create for more uh, for more equality, um, and it didn't necessarily benefit the vast majority of people. But let me give you an example. So. Um, if you're applying for a job, if you're a white person in New Orleans, a white man, and you're applying for a job in these sort of upwardly mobile professions, so that is clerking or accounting, um, jobs that will essentially get you a foot in the door in the cotton and sugar industries, um, but especially cotton. Cotton becomes the sort of major export crop of the United States um, and what really um, the wealth of New Orleans is based on. Um, it absolutely, you know, you see the, the sort of during the application process, and there would be, you know, dozens um, and dozens of applications for a single job. Um, it makes sense from the boss's perspective, at least, um, that they would want to weed out people who were new to this region, um, who had not been acclimated, um, because, you know, exactly as you said, why waste time seeking to train somebody for a detail-oriented job just to see him stricken and dead, you know, by the autumn. Um, it, that was, a you know, perhaps a sort of perversely rational um, response to um, the burdens imposed by, by, you know, living in this such a high, um, a high um, death environment. Um, and, you know, from the employee's perspective, um, you know, people who perhaps had heard rumors of yellow fever, whether, you know, when they were growing up in Sligo or Bremen or Boston, people sort of um, from the American Northern states or from Europe um, who are um, choosing to immigrate to New Orleans, um, they quickly get the message that they basically have to sort of fake it until they make it. So um, it was basically, you know, people essentially sought to um, market themselves as acclimated, whether or not um, whether or not they were actually themselves immune to yellow fever, because otherwise um, they were shut up they were basically in the sort of professional and social purgatory. Um, so it was the rational choice perhaps um, for them to also lie about their immune status. Um, and you see um, most certainly um, people who were seeking to get a leg up in the employment, you know, in, in, in the sort of, in all, in all manner of employment or professional um, in professional classes, you see them taking pains to create a plausible backstory um, for their what happened uh, with what their experience with yellow fever was. And so you'll see people on the job market um, saying, you know, my parents, I'm, I'm native to New Orleans. Um, that was always that was always a shorthand for I'm immune to yellow fever because um, if you were born as a Creole, um, so-called of the time. Um, that meant that you were basically a safer bet. Um, you see people who are producing affidavits um, from friends of theirs um, attesting to their symptoms um, or producing a doctor's note saying that they're acclimated. Um, this is so important, in fact, um, you know, this sort of acclimation credential. Um, this is so important that you, I've seen literally examples of people actually injecting black vomit into their veins, uh, for example, with syringes or else rolling around um, in the beds of their friends who've just been carted off to the charity hospital seeking to get sick It's you know, or even eating black vomit. Um, so this is, you know, it, it, you know, it, it, in the, such a sort of market and such an economy as this. Um, in such a high death, you know, instead in of place where you know death, the death rate has tripled the national mortality average. Um, you know, this was a rational choice that people were making, game, literally gambling, gambling, gambling excuse me, um, literally gambling their lives um, with this disease that they had a fifty percent chance of dying from. So yeah, that's that's sort of what I was trying to understand because if the market did place such a high premium um, on being acclimated, and, and like you say, you were essentially in social purgatory um, if you weren't. Um, then uh, didn't that sort of create an inherent, like really high upside to just faking it or lying to your employer or, um, you know, just like you said, uh, creating an affidavit or getting a doctor's note, that sort of thing. Um, 
instead of taking a 50-50 gamble with your life. Because at the end of the day, all that really matters um, is that you can convince your uh, potential employer or potential creditor or someone like that, that you have been acclimated. Um, and so why why go through all that when you can just uh, go take the easy route instead and just lie about it? Um, what was, was there some sort of verification process? Um, you know, we're society so tightly knit that people would know um, if you were lying, um, what what was sort of like the, the mechanism through which they, they verified this thing? Yeah, so we'll look at the check. Um, and precise, it's, it's, a, it's a great question um, because exactly if this is this is this incredibly valuable but yet invisible credential, what are you supposed to, you know, how do you actually check for this? So um, there's a there's a couple of, you know, there's there's no perfect metric um, and there, there really is none because there are also, you know, there are plenty of examples of people who claim to be acclimated who, you know, die during a big epidemic year. So some of the ways that people locally came to sort of re- separate the acclimated from the unacclimated or the potentially acclimated from the unacclimated or the potentially acclimated from the um, unacclimated. So um, the sort of gold standard perhaps was trying to get a doctor's note, um, having had a physician who saw you through your illness and will sort of even testify to that. This is very common actually in insurance applications, life insurance applications, which is sort of a nascent industry um, by the 1840s and 50s. Um, but you see um, attached to many people, many policy seekers applications, a sort of doctor's note um, attesting that what they had survived in, you know, let's say 1841 had been, was indeed yellow fever. It wasn't just bilious fever. It wasn't intermittent fever. It wasn't malaria. Um, it was yellow fever. So that was sort of, you know, if you could get it, that would be um, sort of the best proof you could have, um, you know, or else, um, you know, you could also really carefully curate um, sort of all sorts of things about your illness. So you would say, you know, you would recount your symptoms in, you know, basically gruesome detail um, down to exactly how much blood had come out of which orifice of your body. Um, you would, um, you know, there were, of course, also, you know, specific years that people remember as being the, sort of the big ones. So 1817 or 1833. Um, and so, you know, this was a, a lot of people were becoming acclimated in those years. And so if you had survived, you know, if you could sort of stake your acclimation to one of those years, um, that was, you know, generally speaking, um, pretty good. But probably the, the most common sort of f- form of checking whether a person was acclimated was literally how long they'd been in New Orleans um, and how many summers that they had passed um, had survived in this space. Um, so, you know, society sort of generally afforded people the benefit of the doubt who had lived in New Orleans for six or seven summers and had survived. Um, given that epidemics happened um, every second or third year, that was generally a pretty good metric um, saying that somebody had survived. But again, all of this is, you know, in, you know, subjective and performative, um, sort of a, a matter of an article of faith in some sense. And so, you know, there really was no proper you know, ironclad check for this, um, not until diagnostic blood testing in the 20th century. So just as, as we're talking, I'm sure um, myself, as well as a lot of our audience are, are wondering, um, what on earth were people still doing in New Orleans if they were taking a 50-50 <laughs> gamble with their lives? If you told me that to stay in the city I live in, uh, I had to take a coin flip on my life, uh, I would get the hell out of here. So um, what were people still doing sticking around? So this is this is the sort of million dollar question. This is the question that you know I think about at three in the morning. In fact, she like, why did people come here? Um, you know, what were they doing here? Um, so I think about it like this. Um, I live now in Silicon Valley, um, and I think that Antebellum New Orleans for white people was sort of like the Silicon Valley of its, of its day. Um, it was where ambitious men went um, if they wanted to strike it rich, if they you know wanted to make it large um, in this you know increase you know increase exponentially increasing cotton economy. Um, this was, again, the most lucrative, you know, this is the most lucrative sector of America's export economy. And 
So people would come here knowing the risks. But I think also this is equally true, um, that we humans are very, very skilled um, at writing ourselves out of the statistics. So what do I mean by that? Um, You know, I've seen, I can't tell you how many letters from 19-year-old boys um, from Philadelphia who say, you know, who write back and say, well, New Orleans, you know, mom, dad, don't worry so much about, you know, my health. Um, New Orleans has never been healthier. It's, you know, everyone says that the sort of all the fears of yellow fever are overrated. And of course, though, you know, my brother might have died of yellow fever. I was always stronger than him. I was always healthier. Um, I will survive. I will become acclimated. Um, Those people who died, they were just weaklings. Um, They were drunks. Um, They were so intemperate, they were, you know, deeply intemperate, and they just didn't even, you know, sort of deserve to survive, um, whereas I am going to survive and beat the odds. And of course, um, you know, you see these letters home, you know, then followed a few months later, often by a letter from their boss saying, um, you know, John died from yellow fever. Um, so I think, you know, I think we've even seen this with COVID-19, too, where, you know, people, you know, think about how many times you've heard of the last you know few years. Well, you know, I'm healthy. I drink green juice. I do yoga. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'll be fine if I get sick with COVID. Um, and that's true, you know, for a much larger number of people, um, COVID is much less deadly than yellow fever was in the 19th century. Um, however, it's not true for everyone. And we're very good at sort of thinking about ourselves as not subject to the same rules, um, that, um, control the lives of others. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. So next I wanted to talk to you about a surprising contradiction that was really eye-opening to me in the book um, regarding assumptions about the immunity of African-Americans. Mm-hmm. So you discuss how the common argument, despite no evidence to suggest this, was that Black people were far less affected by the disease and that this served as justification for making them work in dangerous and diseased environments. Um, you also explored how pro-slavery advocates argued that God had made Black people immunologically superior, specifically so that they could be enslaved. Um, However, the same society that echoed these views also placed acclimated slaves at a premium, and they commanded significantly higher prices. What jumps out at me is that if people really believed that Black people were immune, they would have no reason to pay higher prices for acclimated slaves. The fact, the very fact that they were willing to pay extra means that they knew this wasn't really the case, and the market reflected that fact. So does this contradiction mean that people knew that the argument that Black people black people were less affected was disingenuous and yet used it um, as an intellectually dishonest way to justify slavery anyway? Or do you think that these beliefs could have been truly held? Um, I think the former. I think that fundamentally, um, people who were involved in the slave market, that is slave traders, that is um, enslavers, people who purchase and own enslaved people, I think they fundamentally, and also uh, medical theorists and doctors as well, I think um, they fundamentally um, recognized that enslaved people um, were not immune to yellow fever, um, but yet considered it to be considered this argument of perfect black immunity, um, which was, by the way, this did not originate in New Orleans in the 19th century. This has a long history, this, this idea um, that, you know, goes back to the earliest days of the trans- transatlantic slave trade. Um, this notion that black people possess certain special immunities to certain diseases of a hot climate. Um, this is, you know, it's not true. And we, we, you know, modern epidemiologists have discovered no mechanism for this. And I think actually at the time, um, despite what enslavers would sort of repeat publicly about Black people's immunity, um, I think you can see in their private correspondence um, and in their sort of personal archives just how concerned they were, um, you know, beginning in July when an epidemic was um, sort of brewing or when it was declared. Um, So I think fundamentally um, they 
deeply recognized that black people were vulnerable. And I think that you can see this most evidently because of the premium placed on immunity in the slave market. Um, and I feel, I'm not sure there's another, there's really another way to sort of think about it otherwise. I think that, you know, this, they, they knew essentially this was a lie um, and yet used it um, to their advantage um, regardless. Okay. So, I mean, just thinking about it, if you're a, a plantation owner somewhere in the deep South um, and you're being told by the slave traders or by the pro-slavery advocates, um, especially around the time of the civil war that, um, and, and you're religious, um, for example, and you're, the, the justification you're hearing is that, well, black people are immunologically superior. This is proof that God made them this way so that they could work in these sorts of conditions so that they could be slaves. And then you turn around and see yourself and everybody else clamoring for the acclimated slaves and paying way higher prices. Um, so, I mean, I, I can understand why pro-slavery advocates or the slave traders would make this argument to try and, uh, you know, get higher prices or to try and make this justification. But what about, you know, everyday people, potentially even the people that didn't own slaves? Um, how is this not sort of, especially at the time of the civil, um, preceding the civil war, how is this not becoming obvious to everyone that, um, you know, obviously these people are just lying about it? It's a great question. Um, and, you know, when you um, study slave societies for long enough, um, you um, can kind of go drive yourself crazy by looking at all of the different sort of internal logical contradictions. Um, so, as you say, I think that you're um, right that, you know, this is a sort of a fallacy that is most useful in the society to people who, to white enslavers, um, to people who deal in the slave market. And New Orleans, by the way, is the largest slave market in the United States on the eve of the Civil War. Um, and so I think that's right, but I also think that um, a part of the a part of the um, you know this has been this has been covered substantially by um, historians and economic historians for a long time. But a part of the sort of um, buy-in for all white people, even people who did not own slaves, living in a slave society, was that they you know potentially wanted to one day um, that they thought that they could. Um, this is you know to enslave people to grow cotton or to you know cultivate sugar. Um, this was the true sort of engine of wealth consolidation or wealth accumulation and consolidation um, in the deep South. So normal people. So I'm, when I mean, normal people, let's say like the average sort of, you know, 25 year old German immigrant. Um, so he you know, who arrives in new Orleans in the 1850s, um, he has some incentive to sort of not just, um, you know, buy into the logic of slaveholders um, to sort of take this as at face value, perhaps, um, but then also to you know echo it and go along with it um, because you know it's it's a really useful fiction. This notion of black community, um, it's because it does sort of provide ideological legitimation for the expansion and entrenchment of racial slavery. Um, to say essentially that white people, you know, white people cannot work in certain places on plantations um, because. Um, not only is the work hard, but they'll die there literally. They will literally die there. And so you see, you know, not just pro-slavery theorists, but sort of more ordinary New Orleans citizens and people living, you know, around the Mississippi, the Mississippi River Valley, um, essentially saying that slavery, um, black slavery was humanitarian um, because it protected um, white people from spaces and labor that would kill them um, because there they would die of yellow fever. Um, so even if it's not true, um, it's, it's a very, it's a deeply useful um, and, of course, incredibly dark um, form of logic um, that, you know, you need a form of logic that helped to bolster the society. And so, you know, yes, you are right that the people that it benefits most are the elites, um, you know, the richest white merchants and planters. Um, but it sort of benefits every white person in the society in some sense because it creates 
a racial line and it sort of naturalizes the entire institution of racial slavery upon which in one way or the other, um, many people's, many, many, many white people's um, wealth was built. Okay, so next I wanted to delve into sort of the sociopolitical implications of yellow fever. So as you discuss in the book, the acclimated status um, conferred societal privileges. People wore it as sort of a badge of courage and bravery, signaling that they'd been willing to risk their lives to be of service to their societies, unlike the other cowards. Um, So given that the disease affected all classes of society, did yellow fever, and I think this goes right back to the heart of the book, um, did yellow fever serve as something of an equalizing force in facilitating social mobility? Because all classes of people had to endure this gamble. And those at the bottom of the spectrum that did could command higher salaries and rapidly climb the socioeconomic ladder. Um, meanwhile, even social elites faced ostracization until, until and unless they became acclimated. So specifically among white people, did the yellow fever act, um, epidemic act is an equalizing force that allowed for greater mobility, um, especially among the lower classes for those that survived. Well, sure. In some ways, you know, for the people who survived, um, it could be an engine um, of sort of social mobility. Um, but I think the interesting part about this is that, um, you know, yellow New Orleans, in some sense, um, you know, New Orleans, which was the, 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 the deadliest thing in the nation by far, it had triple the national mortality average. Um, New Orleans, um, in a place like this, also it had it was also a major pull of immigration, um, both free and enslaved. Um, so New Orleans was the um, the hub of the slave and cotton kingdoms. Um, this was where, through the domestic slave trade, tens and tens of thousands of enslaved Africans were marched every year. Um, to be sold, then who would be um, sort of march out of New Orleans um, to work across the Mississippi River Valley. But of course, you also, this is a major um, destination for free white people too, coming from um, Ireland and from Germany too, um, especially following in, following the 1840s and the Irish potato famine um, and also political upheaval in Europe. And so you see people pouring into this space. Um, and the calculation here becomes among the elites that. Um, so, you know, basically, yellow fever was a problem with no solution. Um, there was nothing they could do about it. And nobody was forcing these people to come. So, yes, some people would die. Um, that was sort of, it was, you know, it was their individual duty to become acclimated, to become a so-called acclimated citizen. Some people would die in that process. And for, um, but for the lucky survivors, you know, thereafter, then they would be sort of welcomed with open arms or sort of more open arms into the society. But this sort of strange thing about, um, disease as a tool of the capitalist is that, you know, it's a very convenient one because it literally destroys competition. So yes, I say tentatively that of course, um, for survivors who could convince others of their immune status, yes, they could sort of rise the social economic professional ladder. Um, but that's a sort of, it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing to say that it's sort of, um, an engine of social mobility because it killed so many people, um, to, you know, by literally, and literally therefore, you know, crushed competition. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's a very concrete argument. Um, so I wanted to, next, I want to understand how the culture surrounding acclimation in antebellum New Orleans is similar to or different from other epidemics throughout history. So was the culture of pride in having taken the risk and surviving the d- disease um, mirrored in other parts of the world in this or other epidemics, um, for example, in the Black Plague? Um, and was what we saw in antebellum New Orleans unique or distinct in any way? So it's... Um it's both unique and um, and not so unique also too. So um, you can see the sort of similar patterns of um, immunocapitalism. So this idea that 
acclimated citizens, so called sort of above unacclimated strangers, um, who stood above the dead or sort of above people who um, whose immunity status could not um, personally benefit them. So that's most enslaved people, for example, and also free black people in New Orleans. Um, so you see this dynamic playing out in other um, Atlantic slave societies. Um, so most notably, perhaps Cuba, Havana, um, which is also an incredibly deadly city um, and a place where yellow fever routinely, um, even more routinely, in fact, killed large numbers of newcomers. Um, you see this also in parts of West Africa. Um, you see this also in parts of South America, especially in Brazil, um, where, where yellow fever um, posed a considerable problem throughout most of the 19th century as well, um, 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and you can see also, you know, this, I, this notion of um, immunity to a disease um, leading to sort of social um, or perhaps economic mobility in other diseases as well. Um, so for example, with smallpox, um, Enslaved people um, who had smallpox scars um, were worth were worth considerably more um, in Caribbean slave societies um, because you know this was a great killer and this was evidence that you know a person had survived a disease. Um, you see this especially you know before inoculation became um, de rigueur. Um, in the, the, we're talking so we're talking really in the 18th century. Um, but it's unlike other diseases, sort of acclimation to yellow fever, this you know capital to yellow fever, it's, yellow fever sort of differed because. Um, a person who survived it actually had very robust and long-lasting immunity, lifetime immunity. Um, and this was understood to be the case. Um, whereas other diseases, um, other you know, great killers, for example, cholera, um, you couldn't have immunocapitals to this disease because you could get it more than once. And so having survived it um, isn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily have been an indication that a person was um, A, a better risk. Um, or that they would survive it in the future. And in fact, actually, some diseases, um, if you survived them, you know, they would leave your body really, you know, quite decimated and, you know, with symptoms that would last a long time, not unlike long COVID today, for example, um, where people have, you know, we, we still don't really know much about long COVID, um, but some people have you now now going on, you know, going on years now of sort of fatigue and muscle pains and um, other sort of debilitating symptoms. So, you know, Immunocapital with yellow fever um, is somewhat different, but actually any disease to which a person can acquire lifetime immunity or at least very long lasting immunity could be a contender um, for, you know, thinking about how um, in, in, in shaping societies um, around them and becoming a tool of um, a, a tool of class role. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Oliveris. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.